Sutra 23 Pain that has not yet come is avoidable. I believe we have a purpose, but what is it that we're meant to do? Nobody should tell you, but rather we learn through the things we go through. Notice and listen. Be careful and observe. It is within the silence that the best answer will be heard, said Mr. Kismet. I'm not exactly sure how to describe it, but I felt winds of change. Now when we look to our body, we don't see our form shifting, but I could tell that on a spiritual level, much of our existence was being rearranged. I looked to the birds. Oh, what a beautiful expression of the soul. They flew with the wind as if they trusted the air like it knew exactly where they were called to go. Then I looked within the soul of the trees, and even though some had fallen and were long deceased, the body of these trees were one with the earth, and the soul was ever free. Now a blue jay appeared, and its soul looked into mine. To make mistakes is human, but to forgive is divine, said the blue jay. It's difficult to explain death to those who are still alive. The sensation of living is always pulling at the soul's attention, but to release and let go of all clinging does not mean we lose our life. Although it's sometimes difficult to let go, the wind reminds us that it's actually easy, said Mr. Kismet. Part of me wanted to be just like the wind, and that's why I believe all souls are dying to be freed. We must let go, because why else would we want to hold on to any pain? That is the one part of living that no one alive can quite explain. Pain that has not yet come is avoidable, said Windhorse. Of course, of course, and I loved that horse. The white hair was united with the wind, and she was a powerful force. How lucky are we that these signs like the wind the sun, and even the rain appear for you and me. It's speaking to us. Of course pain that has not yet come is avoidable, but how come this isn't something we can always see? The cause of that avoidable pain is the union of the seer, called Purusha, and the seen, called Prakriti or nature. It could also be said like this, this cause of our suffering is the inability to distinguish between what is true and eternal, our authentic spirit, which is what perceives, and what appears to be true and finite, which is nature, or what the soul perceives. Yoga philosophies speak about two important things. One is the Purusha, the other is Prakriti. The Purusha is the true self, or the eternal and authentic soul. It is this Purusha who sees, while Prakriti is everything else. All other things beside you are the seen, but it seems we identify ourselves with what is seen, with what we possess. As the higher self, all things are possessed by us. That's why we say, my body, my mind, my language, my knowledge. Everything we call ours cannot be us. We speak of ourselves in two ways. One is, look at my body, isn't it slim? The other is, 
Look at how fit I am. But who is fit? Is it you or the body? This identification with other things is the cause of all our pain. Instead, if we are just ourselves always, things may change or stay as they are, but they will never cause us pain because the changes will be in the things we possess and not in us. Stay in your true self. You are that knower. You know everything. When you are happy, you know that you are happy. When you suffer, you know you suffer. That knowing is permanent. You know you have a headache, but at the same time you say, I am aching. This identification should be avoided. If you feel you have suffered a loss, ask, who is the loser? You'll find that you are still here, that you didn't lose yourself, but just something you thought you had. That will greatly reduce your sorrow. When you mix yourself up with your possessions, pull yourself out of the mire and your feelings will change greatly. You'll be a different person, said Windhorse. So what is the purpose of that which is seen? If we are the higher self, that spirit, how do we make sense of it when pain intervenes? The seen is of the nature and of the gunas, which are illumination, activity, and inertia, and consist of the elements and sense organs. The purpose of the seen, or nature, is to provide experiences for the soul and liberation of the soul. The seer is the true you. You become a knower because there is a known. You become a seer because there is something to see. The scene is a combination of different elements and organs controlled by the three gunas, or the aspects of nature. Nature is here to give us experience and to liberate us from its bondage. Even if people do not want to be liberated, it educates them gradually so that one day they will come to feel, I'm tired of this whole thing. I don't want it anymore. I've had enough. When will we feel this way? Only after we've gotten enough kicks and burns. The purpose of nature and the experience is to give us those knocks. Courage, my friend. Nature is a combination of elements and organs. The organs include intellect, mind, senses, and body. Normally we think of nature as being something other than our own bodies. But when we feel we are the true self, even the body becomes part of nature, because it, again, is merely a composition of the elements. If we don't eat, there will be no body. A baby comes out as six or seven pounds of flesh, and even that weight is built up in the womb by the mother's food. The food materials which create the body are just part of nature. Even the mind, senses, and the intellect are part of nature, although a very subtle part. They are matter, and that's why they change. Anything that is matter, or nature, changes. The body changes every second, and every seven to 12 years, we grow a new body. Cells die, then more cells are born. It's a continuous change in the mind and intellect. Nothing in nature can bring the mind continuous, unchanging happiness, because the mind itself changes constantly. Although we have the same stomach, we don't want to eat the same food every day. Although we wear the same shape, we don't wear the same outfit every day. 
The secret of our wanting changes is that the mind changes. If it were always the same, why would it look for change? If we know that, we can just allow things to change without clinging to them. If something changes, we should let it go. Something else will come. We should watch the changes like passing clouds. But normally, we don't want to merely watch them. We want to hold on to a section without letting go. Then the tension comes in. Changes are like flowing water. If you just allow the water to flow, it is very pleasant to sit and watch. But if you want to arrest the flow and keep the water for yourself, you will have to construct a dam. Then the water will resist the dam and try to escape. There will be a terrible struggle. Although you may stop some of the water, another portion will overflow. So you must allow for a spill or the dam will break. All of life is a passing show. If we want to hold it, even for a minute, we feel tension. Nature will try to run away. We will try to pull it back and keep it. When we want to keep it, we put up barriers, which ultimately cause us pain. Even with our own bodies, if we don't want them to change, trouble will come. We will buy all kinds of makeup, creams, and wigs to retain our youth. If only we learn to enjoy each change, we can recognize the beauty even in aging. A ripe fruit has its own beautiful taste. When we just allow things to pass, we are free. Things will just come and go while we retain our peace, said Windhorse. So freedom comes by allowing things to pass, by letting go? So is death freedom? Let me tell you a story from Hindu mythology. At one time, Indra, the king of all, was forced to descend from his high position and take the body of a pig. Pigs, as you know, live in mud. So Indra got into the mire, rolled around, and eventually found a female pig with whom he mated. The outcome of their love was a number of young piglets. They were all very happy. But the angels in heaven, seeing the plight of their king, were horrified. When the angels could no longer tolerate it, they came down and said, You are Indra, our king. What are you doing here? We are ashamed of your present habits. Indra replied, Who says I am unhappy like this? You live up there and say I don't have a happy life here? What fools you are. You should become pigs. Then you'd really appreciate the joy of it. Come on, don't waste another minute. Get into a pig's body. Then you'll see how wonderful it is. Sir, we can't let you go on like this. You must come out, said an angel. Don't disturb me, Indra replied. I have to take care of my young ones. These piglets are waiting for me to play with them. The angels went wild. All right, they decided. Since he's so attached to his children, we'll have to take them all away. One after the other, they killed the piglets, and Indra began crying and wailing. It was devastating. But after he calmed down, he went to his mate, and they decided they'd have more babies. But the angels were adamant. They pulled his mate away and killed her. When Indra continued to moan and cry, they decided to get rid of his body as well. As soon as they pierced open his pig body, Indra's soul came out and looked in amazement at the dead body on the ground. Sir, 
said the angel. You were in that body, but you wanted to stay there, so I came to free you. That is how nature works. As long as we enjoy experiencing nature, no matter what those who understand the truth tell us, we will answer. Oh, you just don't know how to enjoy the world. You don't have enough education, enough money, enough power. You people come from your poor country and tell us nonsense. You want us to become beggars also. Get out. We want to enjoy all our luxuries. But God, the king and the angels know. One day, you'll learn the lesson. When all the entanglements tie you down. When you see you have no room to move about any longer. Then you will realize the truth of the eternal. All these entanglements are like the life of a silk moth. Silk yarn is a sort of fleshy, pulpy substance that comes out of the silk moth. When the moth is just a day old, it is the size of a hair. You can have more than a hundred worms within the space of a thumb. The next day, you'll need the palm of your hand to accommodate them. On the third day, you'll need a tray. And within 30 days, each worm is thicker than a thumb and over three inches long. They grow so big within such a short time because they do nothing but eat mulberry leaves. The first day, all hundred worms can feed on a single leaf. The second, a basket full of leaves is needed. The third day requires a cartload. The fourth, a truckload. Day and night they consume the leaves. The more they are given, the more they take. After 30 or 40 days, they are so tired they can no longer eat. Then they sleep, as anyone who overeats does. When people go to sleep on a full stomach, they roll about, this way and that, as digestion is carried on. So the worms roll, and while they roll, a juicy type of saliva comes out of their mouths. All that the worms ate comes out as a stream of thick paste, which forms silk thread. While the worms rotate, they become bound up in this thread, the silk cocoon. When all the thread has come out, the worms go into a deep sleep wherein they know nothing. Finally, they awaken to see themselves caught in the tight cage they created by their own saliva. What is this? The worms think. Where am I and how did this happen? Then they remember, we ate and ate and ate. We enjoyed everything we could, without exception. We overindulged and became completely exhausted, then totally unconscious. We rolled around and around, binding ourselves up in this cocoon. What a terrible thing. We should have at least shared what we had with others. We were completely selfish. People of wisdom spoke a lot about a selfless life of sacrifice, but we never listened nor followed their advice. The moment they stopped speaking, we started eating again. All those wise words came in one way and out the other. We are paying for our mistakes now. Well, we repent for our sins. The worms repent, pray, and fast. In their deep meditation, they resolve all their unconscious impressions and decide not to live a selfish life again. In the future, they will discriminate before accepting anything. At this decision, two wings appear on either side of each silkworm, one named discrimination and the other dispassion. These are combined with a sharp, clear intellect 
which turns into a sharp nose to pierce open the cocoon. With that, the worms, now silk moths, slip out and fly up high with their fantastically colored wings and look back to see their discarded prisons. We are leaving and will never come back to that again. There is a beautiful lesson in this story. We should ask ourselves, where are we now? Are we still eating? Are we in the cocoon? Are we praying or meditating? Are we growing our wings? Let us ask that question, and if we find ourselves still in the process of consuming, it is better to stop and dispose of what we have already taken in. The more we enjoy, the more we are bound. While enjoying, we are not going to listen to wisdom unless we have extraordinary intelligence. If we don't want to listen, nature teaches us her lessons by putting us in a tight corner. She binds us tight to reveal her nature so we will no longer cling to that. In other words, she liberates us. After liberation, although we are still in nature, we are no longer bound by it. It is as if we acquire nice thick rubber gloves, which allows us to touch any voltage without damage, like a silk moth's wings. These gloves are discrimination and dispassion. When you possess them, you can touch anything and no harm will come to you. When you've learned nature's lessons, she no longer has any business with you, but she continues to exist to teach the many others who have not yet learned. You may have passed out of the university. You may have gone through the curriculum. You might still go in as an alumni just to see how people are faring but you are no longer attached. A liberated person can come into the world and be useful to it, but is not affected by it, said Windhorse. I took a deep breath in, then a deep breath out. Then it takes a lot of courage to keep going. Yes, that's what it's about, said Mr. Kismet. Now forgiveness came forth and spoke. The art of life is to stay wide open and vulnerable yet at the same time, to sit with the mystery and awe, and with the unbearable pain, to just be with it all. But I don't even know where to go from here. When we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And when we no longer know which way to go, we have begun our real journey, said Mr. Kismet. And so the journey is through nature, but nature is so complex. Can you explain how nature comes together and where we should go next? The state of the gunas, which comprise nature, changes from unmanifest to manifest and from subtle to apparent. The best example of this would be the notion of a seed, which is the pure potential and the concept of the unmanifest to the complete genetic code of a particular tree. That one specific seed is subtle but sprouts in the right environment and circumstances to develop into a tree and become apparent. The practice of meditation is a progression from the apparent to the subtle, to the manifest and into the unmanifest. We sit in stillness to go inward into our nature or the seed of our soul. Examine something you've accomplished or acquired from its fruition to the very beginning of the process when the idea first came about in your mind. As you contemplate, you may gain some insight into the origin of some of your wants and desires, 
which prompted you to move forward into action. Where we place our attention and our awareness, our life grows. So when you're feeling stuck, we must begin to examine the seeds that we sow. If you feel that you are quite stuck, then you will stay in that rut. But if you feel like this is a time for expansion and growth, then you yourself become an extension of your own conduit. The seer is nothing but the power of seeing, which, although pure, appears to see through the mind. Since our consciousness is pure and non-material, the seer is an indweller or witness. That means you see through the mind and become identified by the ego because of it. The mind believes it alone is the seer, but you are not the mind or the thoughts in your head. Rather, you are the one who hears it, and so the seer is you, that spiritual consciousness that carries on after the body and mind are dead," said Windhorse. So why does nature and reality exist? If we are pure in our soul, then why manifest right here? The scene exists only for the sake of the seer. It is all for the benefit of us. We are here to experience, understand, and interpret this world because at our core, we are loving awareness. Imagine a movie projection. Awareness is the light that is projected, and the film is what can be experienced. Even if the roll of film were going through the projector, if there was no light, the movie could not be seen. Without loving awareness, there would be no life story to see, but rather, we are like an aperture that the universe is looking through, and there the universe is looking back at you and me. The universe is curious. There are magic in these parts. There is a way to destroy the illusion of reality, and so it is up to those who hear this to tend to the fire in all hearts," said Mr. Kismet. Now Mr. Kismet seemed to be a perfect witness, and so the seer was within everyone else here. All these departed souls had lived and died so many times, yet the spiritual essence of our illuminated hearts always existed as a righteous seer. And that illusion, that scene that exists for the nature of the seer, the trickery is destroyed for the one who has attained liberation, but for those who aren't liberated, the world remains, and so the world is real. Who has seen through the illusion, and who is still trapped in the mire of confusion? The liberated understand this, but to others, they are still trapped within it. To many, the world is like a factory, and in the factory, we can see raw materials come in, be it timber, iron, or whatever. But as they pass through different processes and various machines, they come out as finished products, which go into the showroom, the sales section, and finally to the consumer. These products don't return to the workshop again, but the workshop continues to function as raw materials keep passing through it. The world is like that factory. As we pass through, we are shaped every minute by difficult experiences or pressure. We become refined as our knowledge develops. Eventually, we understand the world completely and have no business being in the factory any longer. Then we can say, once I thought all this was real, money, name, position, title, beauty, but now I understand 
that none of this is permanent. I have watched millionaires become paupers as they pass on. Famous beauties become wrinkled. When that understanding comes, we no longer trust the worldly pleasures nor run after them. When we stop running after the world, the world says, all right, I won't bother you anymore. But whenever you wish to make use of me, says the world, I'm ready to serve you. Then the world runs after you. But we can't shape ourselves without the factory's help. We should know nature first. That is why nature is called the mother. Only through the mother can we know God. Nobody on this earth has understood who his or her father is without the mother's help. She alone can tell us who the father is. Know nature well. Don't try to run from it. Let there be no running or dropping out. Escapism never helps. If we try to leave something now, we will have to face it in a more difficult form later on. But we must be aware of the illusion. The ways of the world will cheat us in every way. It will attempt to come through every nook and corner to tempt us and draw us in. We must have thousands of eyes all over in order to face the world, to understand it, to analyze it, and to face its tests. Many people are afraid of knowing what their problems are. They just want to swallow a pill and forget everything. Instead, they wake up with several new problems. They want to become like ostriches. When there is danger in sight, they want to bury their heads in the sand. But that doesn't mean they have solved their problems. Once we solve and understand our problems, we become masters. Once we are masters, we are no longer bound by nature. Then, nature works for us, said Mr. Kismet. So the path we're heading on is a spiritual trajectory, but what do we call it? I call it self-mastery, said Mr. Kismet.